All right, this evening we want to consider at the opening the matter of prophetic narrative biography as it's reflected in the book of Obadiah, which comes out of my past reflections on this topic as I have attempted to probe what I call prophetic narrative biography of the Old Testament prophets. Now, this material to date is available in my audio series on the prophet Jeremiah. Some of you have sat through that. Prophet Zephaniah, more of you have sat through that. And a published article on the prophet Hosea, which was printed in the September 2007 KRUKS, the Journal of the Seminary. You can see that it's now 10 years into my own reflections on the prophets that I have been examining or probing this matter of what I call prophetic narrative biography. Now, the purpose of this type of exploration, this excursion, if you will, into prophetic narrative biography is to consider the life of the prophet, the life of the prophet, the individual prophet, the life of the prophet as a mirror reflection, an embodiment, if you will, of the self-disclosure of God in redemptive historical continuum. Now, the life of the prophet, under this consideration, this examination, is drawn into the circle of the life of God. The life of the prophet is drawn into the circle of the life of God. God who reveals himself in the prophet's narrative biography. A mirror reflection, God's life reflected in the life of the prophet, the life of the prophet, a mirror reflection of the life of God. That is what I am examining and attempting to penetrate. This pattern reveals God himself as the one who indwells the prophet in order to draw the individual prophet's mind and his heart and his soul into the heavenly dwelling place of God triune, into the place where the life of God is manifest perfectly. There is, therefore, this interface between the Lord God and the prophet, an interface which joins them in a mystical union so profound that it is a veritable disclosure and anticipation of the supreme mystical union between God and his prophet servants. And what is that supreme Mystical union, it is the incarnation of the Son of God as the eschatological prophet. 
the Son of God as the eschatological prophet whose narrative biography is the very embodiment of the heavenly kingdom in the flesh, inviting sinners everywhere in these last days to draw near unto God, to draw near unto God in his heaven through the narrative biography of the life of his son in the flesh and in eternity. Now, in the case of the prophet Jeremiah, his narrative biography of proclamation and suffering was so embedded in the Hebrew consciousness that many of Jesus' contemporaries regarded Christ's life as the reincarnation of Jeremiah's life. Hold your finger there in Obadiah and turn over to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 14. Matthew 16, 14. <clears throat> Clyde, do you have it? Yeah. Would you read it out? Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now they're answering the question, who do men say that I am? This is Jesus answering the question. Notice what some of the Jews say. Some of the Jews say that Jesus of Nazareth is a veritable reincarnation of the prophet Jeremiah. The narrative, prophetic, biography repeats or replays itself in the case of Jesus and Jeremiah. Now, the narrative biography of the prophet Zephaniah is more challenging than Jeremiah's because we have fewer biographical details. But nevertheless, though Zephaniah's words and life, through those words and life, we are identified with the provisional end of the Jewish monarchy and the Jerusalem temple along with it, as we are alerted to what Jesus himself predicted. Jesus predicted the great day of God's wrath realized against Judea, Jerusalem, and the temple with an open door of invitation to the Lord God, Emmanuel, in the midst of his redeemed people. The Lord God in the midst of his redeemed people. That is a narrative biographical reflection from the book of the prophet Zephaniah. So hold your finger in the book of Obadiah and turn forward a few pages to the prophet Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Zephaniah 3, 15 and 16. Zephaniah 3, 15 and 17. 
And Art, if you have 15, would you read it out, please? If the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, he has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And Marge, do you have verse 17 open? The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The Lord your God in your midst. In your midst, God with us. The Emmanuel prophecy of God's presence with his people. This is part of the warp and woof of the narrative biography of the prophet Zephaniah. Now that assembly that Zephaniah projects is an assembly of those brought from all nations. And they will be brought to that place where God is in their midst. An eternal Jerusalem. A Jerusalem above, a heavenly Jerusalem. And that is the vocabulary of the New Testament apostle. Once again, holding your finger in Obadiah, turn ahead to Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. Donnie, do you have it on your electronic Bible? No, I'm fine. Okay. Dick, do you have it? Uh, uh, which version? Galatians 4, 26. 26. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Well, maybe your numbering is different. Oh, oh sorry. 26. You want 24? No, 26. Okay, sorry. But the Jerusalem above it, is free. She is our mother. There is the phrase, the Jerusalem above. Now over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12:22. Where is God in the midst, as Zephaniah projects? God in the midst of his redeemed people. He is in the midst of his redeemed people, in that place where he dwells eternally with them, in the Jerusalem above. In the eternal Jerusalem, or as Hebrews 12.22 says, and if you have Hebrews 12.22, read it out, whoever has it. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels. The what Jerusalem, Loretta? The heavenly Jerusalem. It is the language of the scriptures that this dimension where God is in the midst perfectly and consummately is the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem which is above. All right, so there are some indications of that prophetic narrative character from Jeremiah as well as from Zephaniah. Now the case of the prophet Obadiah. Many scholars will say that a prophetic narrative biography of Obadiah is impossible. Impossible because there are no 
narrative biographical facts available in the book of Obadiah. Even the date at which time he prophesies or at which time he lived is hotly, and I mean very hotly, debated. If we are seeking God's self-disclosure in redemptive historical continuum, where does Obadiah fit on the line of that continuum? Where does his narrative biography fit into redemptive history? Let us explore that question. Let us probe deeply, at least as deeply as I am capable at this point in my career, let us probe deeply into that question. With all honesty, we do know about the life of the prophet Obadiah. And what do we know? We know, first of all, that he was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem in what year? Shout it out. 586 B.C. This is the plain sense of Obadiah, verses 10 to 14. If you have your Bibles open, please follow as I read the text. Obadiah 10 and following. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people In the day of their disaster, yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. And do not stand in the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. What is the day of violence? Verse 10. What is the day when strangers and foreigners entered the gates of Jerusalem? What is the day of the misfortune and destruction of Judah and Jerusalem? What is the day of their disaster? What is the day of their distress? What is that day? Shout it out. What date? Repeat yourself. The same one I said earlier. That's exactly. Repeat yourself. You learn by repetition. All right, so... The plain sense of those five verses is the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by what nation? Shout it out. Babylonians. While the Edomites looked on without lifting a finger to help their brother Jacob. On the redemptive historical continuum then, Obadiah fits into the early 6th century B.C. prophetic period, the prophetic period of other prophets like 
Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and even Daniel. In fact, Obadiah knows the words of the prophet Jeremiah, even as he knows the words of the prophet Joel. And this suggests that Obadiah was trained in the school of the prophets so that we know that about him. He came out of the prophetic school of Judah. Furthermore, his use of the word vision, if you look at verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, his use of that Hebrew word, which in Hebrew is hatzon, that places him alongside Isaiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, who also use that term hatzon or vision for their prophetic revelations. That is an additional confirmation that Obadiah is part of the Hebrew prophetic scholarly tradition. He uses a technical term which other Old Testament prophets use because he's part of the group. Thus, Obadiah's narrative biography ripples along with Jeremiah's, Habakkuk's, Ezekiel's, Zephaniah's, Daniel's. Together with them, he shares the narrative ripples of Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem and her Solomonic temple. His life, Obadiah's life, is identified with that fateful drama. His prophetic character or personality is formed, molded, matures in that time and in that space. We place Obadiah as a character into time and space. And in that time, spatial era and arena, he is formed under the hand of God's direction. His life identified with that destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, yet he shares, and he shares that in common with other Old Testament prophets, but what he shares in common is not what he is peculiar and unique about, for there is a particularity, there is a unique vision in the case of the prophet Obadiah's hot zone. He features Edom, and he features Edom in a particular way unlike any other prophetic reflection on that nation. His words about the Edomites are anchored in the broad canopy of redemptive history, which extends all the way back to the patriarchal era and specifically to the era of Jacob and Esau, two names that he uses routinely in his little book. Obadiah anchors his prophetic narrative about Jacob and Esau's descendants in the patriarchal revelation. In truth, 
Obadiah is providing a commentary. Obadiah's prophecy is a commentary on God's sovereign decree disclosed originally in Genesis 25-23 when God himself said, the elder shall serve the younger. Does that suggest that Obadiah may have lived in Edom? So familiar is he with the nation as his prophecy indicates? Or was he merely a traveler through Edom, recalling the mountain crags and dry wadis, the grassland plateaus and the busy commercial cities as he traveled the caravan routes which crisscrossed Edomite territory? Or did he just read about Edom in the Old Testament scriptures and listen to stories and descriptions of that land from travelers who frequented the gates of Jerusalem where he sought to eavesdrop? However we answer those questions, it is clear that Obadiah knew a great deal about the nation of Edom. But he also knows a great deal about about the nation of Judah and her holy Mount Zion. In addition, he knew a great deal about the holy temple on that mountain because, among other hints, he is conscious of the use of the Psalms He is conscious of the use of the Psalms in the liturgy of temple worship. We'll look at one example. Look at the last verse of the book of Obadiah, verse 21. Could somebody please read it out? Keep your finger there and turn back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 28. You have it, Kay? Okay, notice those two phrases, the kingdom is the Lord's, or the kingdom will be the Lord's. The Hebrew is Yahweh, the kingdom will be to the Lord, and it is exactly the same Hebrew construction in both Psalm 22, 28, and in Obadiah 21. Obadiah knew the Davidic psalm. He knew the phrase, from the Psalm of David in Psalm 22, verse 28. And he uses that imagery as well as that duplicate language at the end of his very own prophetic work. He knew the Psalter. But it is that kingdom that he mentions in that last verse of his prophecy that we want to reflect upon in a little more depth. This kingdom is the kingdom of the elect son of the father. 
who stands atop the heaven-descended ladder with ascending and descending angels trafficking thereon. This is the elect son who comes to his own with the display of the kingdom of his father, a display in supernatural word revelation and supernatural miracle demonstration. This elect son of the father, chosen seed of Jacob's race, comes suddenly to his temple and stunningly declares that he himself is the better temple and that the temple of stone and marble will pass away to be no more. It will disappear in destruction so that the living temple may endure to all eternity in glory and resurrection and life without end. Obadiah's yearning, longing, desiring heart is fixed upon that kingdom, that king, eternal son of the eternal father, the elect out of Jacob's seed, out of Joseph's house, elect out of Joseph's house, the beloved son of the father, betrayed by his brothers, sold for 30 pieces of silver, whose coat stained with blood is nonetheless the garment of salvation for those robed in his unstained garment, the robe of his exaltation, exaltation to the right hand of power and grace and all sufficient provision, provision, food, bread, bread, food for the soul, for the heart, for eternity, all sufficient provision in the land of no more hunger, no more sorrow, no more famine, no more death. This one chosen of God, whose kingdom is his possession, the omnipotent, supernaturally endowed wrestler, the wrestler whose nature is a mirror of heaven-begotten life, while at once the giver of that new begotten life, precious begotten again, mirror of heaven, this giver of a kingdom of sonship, seed of Jacob, house of Joseph, this giver of the newborn heaven-begotten nature, this giver of the garment the beautiful coat, the all-covering robe of salvation, his possession to give what he possesses he gives. By grace through faith he freely gives to all sinners of the world who have ears to hear what the Spirit speaks through the prophet Obadiah? Ah, indeed. But we know one more thing about Obadiah's prophetic narrative biography. We know that he was a remarkably gifted artist. 
an artist of poetry, literary expression, rhetorical evocation, theological penetration, even Christological anticipation and self-disclosure. There is so much creative verbal brilliance in the Hebrew of this little book that we stand back amazed at the gift of composition and the supernal gift of inspiration. The skill of this Hebrew craftsman is not only artistic, it is visually gripping. Visually gripping and magnificently concludes with the kingdom of God atop Zion's holy mountain. The crescendo is in the very last verse, the final note. All right, now, let's summarize what we have suggested about the prophetic narrative biography of Obadiah. First, we know that he is a prophet out of the nation of Judah. Second, we know that he is an eyewitness to the destruction of his nation, her capital city, Jerusalem, and its temple complex, in 586 B.C. Third, we know that he is an eyewitness to the destruction wreaked by Babylon, abetted abetted by Edom. Fourth, we know that he is expertly trained in the use of verbal poetic imagery. He is magnificently skilled in painting visual tableaus of the past, present, and future of the parties and events which are described in his prophetic drama. I outlined that last time in the visualization exercise that we ran through at the end of that session. And finally, we know that Obadiah participates in a broader drama. Obadiah participates in a redemptive historical drama, a drama which identifies him with the seed of Jacob, the sons of Judah, the house of Joseph, and that in eschatological narrative. Obadiah participates in the narrative of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ the seed of Jacob, the son of Judah, out of the house of Joseph. Any questions about what we have drawn out of the text, drawn out of the time of the era in which the text was inspired, drawn out of the life of the man who writes the text, in this year, any questions about Obadiah's prophetic narrative biography? Go ahead, Randy. You used a word, I'm not sure I caught it right, parky or something. What was that? That word you used, parky? I'm, I'm not hearing your translation. It was just a few, 
minutes ago, recently. I must have misunderstood the word, so never mind. Okay. Poetry? Maybe it was poetry. Yeah, maybe you said that. Yes, I said visual poetry. Yeah, maybe that's what I meant. Yeah, the poetic idiom, which is visual. You can see the images. The last uh, part of last week's uh, session was a run-through of all 21 verses to show the tapestry character of this visualization. He he gives you images painted on a large tapestry. We'll have an opportunity to repeat that when we go verse by verse. Yes, Bob? You said there was quite a bit of the controversy about when he lived, but yet what you presented seems to narrow it down pretty pretty well. Thank you, I persuaded you so well. Quite honestly, it was a struggle to deal with that issue uh, as I worked through the commentaries this past summer and the critical literature because uh, most of the liberal higher critics do not believe the book comes from the period of the destruction of Jerusalem. They believe it's post-exilic. It is a diatribe read back by the post-exilic Jews onto the past upon their enemies, the Edomites, who harassed them and so on and so forth. So in other words, it's a xenophobic uh, <clears throat> treatise which Christians can't use. Uh, <clears throat> now, I dismiss that uh, because it's the inspired word of God, first of all. But I honestly, as you may have noted, as I read through verses 10 to 14, I don't know how you can read those five verses and think that there's anything else that he's describing except the end of Judah and Jerusalem. I, it doesn't fit any other event. In the ancient and the history of the ancient Near Eastern world. So, unless you're prejudiced against the fact that the historian can't write history as an eyewitness, and some redactor has to invent the history out of what he's read from the Babylonian chronicles or some other record, and then reinterpreted re- it and pushed it back into the sixth century BC, which of course makes it, a, it the text is lying. The author's a deceiver. He's not Obadiah. He's a pretender. He's, he's, wor- he's working political propaganda. He's doing what the major modern media do. He's creating a narrative for political purposes, to grind an axe in a particular political, economic, social, even religious dimension, direction, I should say. Okay. That's the critical view of the book of Obadiah. So you, 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 you encounter that as you work through the critical commentaries. But you're welcome. But you come down once again to what the text says. And if you believe the text is objective historical reporting, eyewitness historical reporting, then verses 10 to 14 seal the deal. You can't go anywhere else, in my opinion. It's definitely not talking about the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 by the Assyrians, is it? It's not mentioning, well, it does mention Samaria, but it doesn't mention it in destructive context. And it doesn't mention the Assyrian enemy. Okay. All right. Now, let's turn our attention then to the redemptive historical drama, which is the next section on the handout. Now, here I'm looking at Obadiah as a part of a larger overview, namely the overview 
and the outworking of God's sovereignty. The book of Obadiah, in its own genius, is part of a broader genius. It's part of a more magnificent genius. It's part of a comprehensive tapestry that stands even beyond him. And that is the exercise of God's divine sovereignty. How so? Well, it comes from the protological prophecy and the eschatological prophecy. Right, now what do I mean by that term protological? Protological, having to do with what? History, current events. Protos. What's proto mean in that word? First. First, yes. Having to do with first things. Okay? Eschatology. Having to do with... Ready? Last things. Where does this language come from? Greek. It's Greek language. Where does it come from? What's the source of this language? This... This term, protos, eschatos, in tandem as I have it here on the sheet. Where do you find it? It's in the Bible. What part of the Bible do you find it? Who is talking about a first and last? Jesus was. Jesus. In Revelation. Not in Revelation, no. Doesn't use the word protos and eschatos in the Greek. Art? I don't know. John. Who's talking about a first and last? This is section of Matthew. Not Matthew? Not John. Not John? Protos Adam, Eschatos Adam. No, Paul is the answer. The Apostle Paul is talking about a first and last what? Adam. Adam. Where is he talking about a first and last Adam? Romans 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. So, in the Bible, there is a passage in which Paul uses the words that I have transliterated here into English. Protos in Greek, protological or having to do with first things. Eschatos in Greek having to do with last things. He's using it with respect to Adam the first and Adam the last. Adam the beginning and Adam the end. The protological Adam and his protological Eve and the protological eschatological Adam and his eschatological Eve, his bride, the church. All right, so the language is not invented by me. The, The language is used by me. I'm deriving my vocabulary from inspired biblical vocabulary. I'm not trying to impress you with fancy words. I'm using biblical terms to show you a pattern, even as Paul uses biblical terms, protos and eschatos, to show you a pattern. He shows you the pattern between the first Adam and the last Adam, the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. And he does that for redemptive historical purposes. So it's the same paradigm. It's a redemptive historical paradigm, only it's a paradigm that applies to Adam. Now, here we have a protological prophecy, 
and an eschatological prophecy. Now we're dealing with the book of Obadiah. So what protological prophecy do we have in mind? Jacob and Esau. Very good. And what is that protological prophecy? Jacob, I love and Esau. That's not in the book of Genesis. Hold on. What is in the book of Genesis? What is the beginning prophecy? I already gave it to you earlier this evening. What does God say to Rebecca? Go ahead. I was, I was going to go to the head nodder, but your mouth was going too fast. I couldn't. That's all right. Uh, yes. Genesis 25, 23. The elder shall serve the younger. That's the protological prophecy. What's the eschatological prophecy? There's a prophecy about first things. Okay? Prophecy about the first things of Jacob and Esau. Esau. Okay? So what's the eschatological prophecy? Jacob will look Esau. Not quite. That's even before the first prophecy, as we'll see in a moment. The eschatological prophecy is Obadiah's book. That's the eschatological prophecy that... The elder, the elder will be destroyed and the younger will be restored or saved. All right, so we have the paradigm here of God's sovereignty from the protological declaration of God himself. Those are the very words of God. Now, I'm not saying Obadiah's aren't the very words of God, but they're spoken directly from God's mouth to Rebekah's heart or ear. Here with Obadiah, we have... God speaking through the prophet. So, God declares at the protological beginning that the elder shall serve the younger, and God declares through his prophet at the end the eschatological destiny or finality of Jacob and Esau. Which means that behind the redemptive historical drama, the broader tapestry is the eternal decree of God. Now we turn to Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. So keep your finger in Obadiah and turn ahead to the last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3. And let's put our eyes upon the passage as we get it, as it's read out, whoever has it. Follow, everybody follow as it's read, please. Whoever has it, go ahead and read. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? But not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. There you see Malachi even pinning himself to the prophecy of Obadiah with respect to what's going to happen to Edom and Esau as his <clears throat> mountains are going to be made a desolation and his, and his inheritance a wilderness of jackals. All right, now keep your finger in Malachi and let's turn ahead to Romans chapter 9. And once again, <clears throat> we want to, to look at these passages because they are reflections upon the work of the prophet Obadiah. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. 
And Loretta, do you have it? Yes. Please read. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her that older will serve the younger. Just that it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Thank you very much. Now you notice that the apostle pulls both of those passages together. He pulls the Genesis 25 passage and matches it with the Malachi 1 passage, and he does it in a comprehensive description of God's eternal sovereignty. Sovereignty with respect to election and reprobation. Election of Jacob have I loved, Jacob have I chosen, Esau have I hated, Esau have I not chosen. Election and reprobation. So, the broader issue here in the book of Obadiah is the unsearchable eternal decree of God that reaches back into all eternal, everlasting, non-time and declares from the time of the conception and birth of these twins, the elder shall serve the younger, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This is election of predestination, and reprobation of predestination. But in its deepest and most poignant expression, namely anchored in God's determination, God's will, God's decree, God's choice. So, with respect to election, who is active? Who acts in election? God acts in election. Who is passive? The sinner is passive. God actively chooses. God actively elects. And having actively chosen and elected, what does he then do? He sends his Holy Spirit to do what? Change of heart. Which is giving the name of the doctrine. Regeneration. He sends the Holy Spirit to change the heart, to regenerate the heart, to make the heart born again, hmm? to give the rebirth, a new birth. So, God's decree includes his action. It includes his choice. It includes his determination. It includes his predestination to do so. And he does so by acting upon the sinner's heart who could not do anything to change his own, not of works, as uh, Loretta read to us, certainly not any work that the sinner has done, is God's act. Sinner is passive, and having chosen and determined to choose and elect that individual, then he changes their nature so that they will respond. Then they will act in faith and in repentance. All right. On the other, on the other side, there's the eternal decree of reprobation. God is active in the decree of election. Who is active in the decree of reprobation? The sinner is active. God, the sinner is passive in the decree of election. Who is passive in the decree of reprobation? God is passive. 
God passively chooses to do what under reprobation? Let you choose to go to hell. He chooses to do nothing. Nothing. Exactly. He chooses to do nothing. And he leaves that person to themselves. He passes them by. He leaves them to himself. He sovereignly decrees to do nothing to change their nature, their heart, their inclinations. And this is the famous doctrine of preterition. That is Augustine's, that is Augustine's word out of the Latin for passing by, preterition. That the decree of reprobation, the decree of damnation, is a decree of preterition to leave them alone. He must take that hard-hearted sinner and do something to give them a heart of flesh. He must act. But if he doesn't act, remains a hard heart, doesn't it? It never softens, is it? God must act before the heart will respond. The Holy Spirit must come before faith will be exercised or expressed. God first, sinner second. If he chooses not to, he leaves the sinner to himself. Unfair, unjust, I didn't get the same chance. Who are you? Lord, thou one man to reply against, reply against thy creator. And of course, what is the ground? I'm being unjustly treated? Am I being unjustly treated? What do I deserve? I deserve reprobation. I deserve damnation. I reserve the fruit. I deserve the fruit of my hard heart. I deserve the fruit of my sins, which I refuse, I refuse to cease doing. It's not as if I'm being sent to hell kicking and screaming against it. I'm being sent to hell with my full will and consent. Oh, that's harsh, Dennison. That's harsh. Um, you're living, you're living in an age in which you're beginning to see the harshness of sin, hard-hearted sin. You're beginning to see in all of its ugliness, the depravity of the human heart, a heart which is as hard as adamant. And you're beginning to realize that no government program is going to judge those hearts. No political elected official is going to change those hearts. No nation is going to change those hearts. No group of leaders is going to change those hearts. You're beginning to see a culture in which nothing is going to change those hearts from outside except the almighty supernatural grace of God, the Holy Spirit, and you better be on your knees praying for that to be poured out because it's not going to stop any other way unless God stops it. By revival. End of sermon. Great time. All right, now we want to consider the narrative drama, which is the next section of your handout. Using the two voices in Obadiah, which is to say the two narrative voices in Obadiah. To develop the drama of his prophetic voice. 
Now, you have a series of blanks there, which should be fairly straightforward, uh, easy enough for you to fill in. There are two narrative voices in the book of Obadiah. The voice of the first one, by name, is... No, these are narrative voices. A proper name. Who are we just talking about? Two proper names. Jacob is the first name. Of what nation? Keep going, Terry. Judah. Judah. And of what mountain? Zion. Zion. So the second name, second voice, is the voice of what nation? Edom. What mountain? Seir. Seir. Or the mountain of Esau, as Obadiah labels it. All right, so... First line there, you should have Jacob, Judah, Zion. Second line, Esau, Edom, Seir, or Mountain of Esau. All right, these are the two voices. What is the drama? The drama is the approaching crisis, conflict, the critical element in the two relationships. And what crisis is that? The book of Obadiah is displaying or showing forth or prophesying what crisis? Babylon's uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. The day of judgment. Now, I use the word day intentionally because it's freighted in verses 10 to 15 over and over again. It's a light verter. It's a key word in that section of the prophecy. Right? You've narrated the approaching destruction. The day of judgment is going to result in destruction. So the narrative voices are facing that coming crisis labeled in verse 8 as that day, labeled in verse 12 as the day of distress, labeled in verse 15 as the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. All right, now, the two voices speak variously with respect to that crisis. One voice speaks final judgment, utter destruction, and no future redemption. That is the narrative, dramatic voice of Esau, Edom, out of Mount Seir or the mountain of Esau. The other voice speaks final salvation, later restoration after provisional destruction, and future eschatological redemption. There is a narrative plot interface between both narrative voices, an ongoing and unfolding plot interface between the two. These Two voices are interrelated. They interface. The voice of Jacob and Esau is the voice on the one hand of salvation and on the other hand of judgment and damnation. On the one hand, it is on survival and restoration. On the other hand, it is on destruction and annihilation. 
The drama of the prophecy creates this narrative tension. And that is played out in the plot which reaches its peak in the crisis that is on the horizon for both of them. All right, that's the narrative drama. Now the narrative paradigm. Now here we're talking about the pattern which emerges from the narrative. The pattern or the narrative paradigm which emerges from the narrative. That pattern is a pattern of reversal. I illustrated it last time in the visualization rundown, but let's take a look at it again in the light of what we've seen this evening. Reversal. The reverse narrative paradigm. The reverse narrative pattern. Under the sovereignty of God, we've got a pattern of reversal, don't we? What's the reverse of election? Reprobation. Reprobation. What's the reverse of salvation? Damnation. Damnation. Okay. All right. So we have a reverse paradigm worked out here in the book of Obadiah on the basis, first of all, of election and reprobation, which we've already indicated is in the background, not only patriarchal, but prophetic, Malachi, and apostolic, Paul, Romans 9. Salvation and destruction or condemnation or damnation is obvious in terms of what happens to these two nations. But what about the element of birth? Let's consider the pattern of birth. And the reverse of that pattern? Death. Okay. Anything else consistent with birth? Beginning. True. I want to turn it around. Okay. My my clues aren't very good, I can see. Creation. Pardon? Creation. Creation? No. Contempt of birth. So, in the one case, we have a birth which is appreciated or esteemed. We also have the reverse of that in the contempt or despising of that birth. The reverse paradigm, which is once again in the background of the patriarchal narrative of the birth and history of Jacob and Esau. Well, let's take rebirth or regeneration. What's the reverse of regeneration? Degeneration. <laughs> Degeneration. Further, further and further. We can't say unregeneration because that would suggest that they had it and then it was taken away from them to be non-regeneration or no regeneration. So we do have a paradigm or a pattern of regeneration in one, no regeneration in the other. Where's the regeneration of Jacob? Where is it? Ah, 
You missed it when I told you. In the battle with the angel? That's right. When he wrestles with the angel. How can Jacob prevail with an angel unless the angel allows him to? Unless the angel enables him to prevail. And yet touch his thigh and it goes immediately out of joint to show who has the greater power. And what does the angel say after that wrestling incident? What does the angel do to Jacob after that wrestling incident? Bless him. Yeah. You're warm, but you're not hot. He changes his name, Loretta. Go to the head of the class. Excellent. What does that mean? Rebirth. Rebirth. A new nature, right? No longer Jacob. What does Jacob mean? What's the name Jacob mean? Joker. Joker, not quite. Deceiver. Deceiver. Trickster. Charlatan. What's Israel mean? Prince with God. Prince with God. So, the wrestling with the angel is the wrestling with Jacob's old man. And he becomes a new man out of that wrestling incident. Because who wrestles with him? Who is the angel? Which person is God in? The Holy Spirit ever become incarnate? It's the Son of God in pre-incarnate form. It's the Son of God wrestling. It's Jesus, Son of God, before His incarnation, taking a temporary body, an angelic form, and wrestling with Joseph, who is going to be the father of Jesus. Huh? Okay. Does that happen to Esau? No, it doesn't happen to Esau. Esau doesn't wrestle with his nature. God doesn't wrestle with Esau's nature either, but Esau doesn't wrestle. He doesn't wrestle with anything except his belly, which he wants stuff full. Okay. Reverse paradigm. Regeneration and no regeneration. Paradigm of faith. What's the reverse? Unbelief. Jacob a believer. Esau a non-believer. Yes, in fact, he's called godless in the New Testament. It's almost the equivalent of calling him an atheist. Reverse paradigm. Narrative pattern. Okay, next. Grace. Jacob is the recipient of grace. Amen. Reverse paradigm. Merit. Mm-hmm. Esau is graceless. Graceless. Not only does he have no interest in it, but he doesn't receive it. Doesn't want it has no real interest in it. New Testament calls him an immoral person. That's where his interests lie. Okay. <clears throat> Reverse paradigm. 
Next. One respects, delights, desires. The other rejects, despises, disdains. Jacob respects and delights and desires eventually. Esau rejects his birthright, despises his birthright in the covenant, disdains his mother and father. Esau is not a nice person. Esau is a rather nasty character. So, let's not have any pity party for Esau. He knows exactly what he's doing in every step he makes in the story. And he makes those steps on the basis of what drives his character, what drives his heart, and it isn't the love of God. All right, now, the last two are interrelated. But these are important parts of the reverse narrative paradigm. One dies in the promised land. Well, he doesn't die in the promised land. He dies outside of the promised land, but he wants to be carried up to the promised land for burial. The other dies in a pagan land, and he could care less about being buried in the land of God's covenant. No, he'll be buried in the land which he built for himself. Esau buried in Edom. Jacob buried in Canaan. All right, so this paradigm, this pattern of reversal is going to inform the imagery that we will read about as we work through the verses of the book of Obadiah. So keep in mind that you have a broader narrative than just what is in the words on the page. This is a much deeper and richer drama than just trying to superficially understand what the words mean and what he's talking about at in the front of you. There's a rich depth here. And that comes to the final element of the narrative analysis, namely the narrative characterization. Now, there's a motif to the characterization of the individuals here in the drama, basically Esau and Jacob once again. That motif or theme is antagonism. Now, in the word English word antagonism, you see this word agon, which is a Greek word. That represents a, a modern day literary discussion, the agon motif, the agony motif, the conflict motif. It's sometimes used in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul to refer to athletic conflict or contest. In modern discussion of literary imagery, it refers to antagonism. 
So you have a protagonist and an antagonist. The agon motif is an analysis of that process of antagonism and, the, and, and what feeds into it and what derives from it. All right, now, here, with respect to Jacob and Esau, there is antagonism between them from their birth. The fact that Jacob comes forth from his mother's womb grasping the heel of his brother means that there was antagonism even between them in while they were in utero. Second of all, their descendants are antagonistic. Judah and Edom are not very friendly. We reviewed a little bit of that history last time as we talked about the wars of David and the occupation of Edomite territory, the rebellion of the Edomites against the Davidic or the Hebrew, the Davidic and Solomonic monarchy, and then the reoccupation of Edom by Judean control. The antagonism arises most directly and immediately in the story about the birthright in the book of Genesis. Jacob treasures that birthright so much that he's willing to steal it. He's willing to take it from his brother for a mess of pottage. But notice that Esau is so contemptuous of that birthright that he's willing to sell it for a mess of pottage. Now, the deviousness of Jacob cannot be defended but nonetheless, underneath it is what we say a commendable element. He knows what that birthright means and he respects its meaning. Does Esau respect its meaning? He knows what it means. But he despises it and dismisses it in order to feed his stomach. That's how casual Esau is about the primogeniture, the right of inheritance. Well, that birthright is tied to the covenant promise. That birthright is tied to the covenant reality, to the relationship of being one of God's heirs and co-heirs. It has an overlapping reflection on rebirth as well, but we focus just upon the fact that the birthright continues the line of the covenant possession and inheritance. Jacob knows something about that, and he prizes it. Esau despises it. The covenant and the God of the covenant is not what he wants. He wants the meat of the field. He wants the prowess of a mighty hunter. He wants marrying women that are not covenant women outside of the covenant community. And he breaks his mother and father's heart when he does it. 
But he does it in contempt, even as he dismisses the birthright by contempt, even as he contemptuously threatens to murder his brother after he realizes that his brother has taken the blessing from him. And that brings us to the land of God, the covenant of God and the land of God. Because the promise to Abraham was not only a gracious benediction, but the promise to Abraham was a blessed possession. True, that blessed possession was more than the land of Canaan. But Canaan was the expression visible of it under the Old Testament uh, shadow and figure. Jacob esteems that land of God. He esteems it because he comes back to it after he runs for his life to Uncle Laban. Esau despises the land of God. Oh, he's content to stay there for a while until he's wealthy enough, rich enough, and powerful enough to take over the land of the Horites east of Canaan in the Edomite plains. We've already alluded to the fact that Jacob esteems his parents in measure. Esau despises his parents, obviously. Though he cries with tears, as the New Testament expresses it, He cries with crocodile tears. He has no real affection for his parents or for the land of the covenant or for the God of the covenant. The one is antagonistically oppressed. The other is the oppressor who oppresses. The one is blessed by God. The other is cursed by God. And the book of Obadiah declares a prophetic benediction upon one party and a prophetic malediction on the other. The characterization of the chief parties in this prophetic drama, Jacob and Esau, is a characterization anchored in their own biography a biography which is anticipated by the sovereignty of God, but a sovereignty and a biography which comes to its final expression in Obadiah's prophecy. He's telling you a story. He's painting it for you in pictures. Each verse is a panel of the tapestry which he is displaying of the character the drama, the paradigm of the narrative, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Any questions? Mandy? In modern America, this is reflective on my own dad because I was the first born. There's no real acknowledging this kind of firstborn inheritance is it but there might be in other European nations down through recent civilization 
I would gather with you. Do you know people in your family? I mean, does anybody really acknowledge the firstborn as having any significance over any other born? Or? No, it's more, it's more frequent in Asian cultures, where particularly the firstborn son, even today, firstborn son has a primacy that the others do not have. He also has more responsibilities as a firstborn son. So you, would you say that that firstborn son has kind of disappeared with Christ then? Would you say in some sense? Or? Probably disappeared before Christ. Probably disappeared in the post-exilic era, particularly in the Maccabean period. Not entirely, but it became de-emphasized. I'm trying to justify myself like I didn't throw away my hair in hair. I never really had one, all right? That's how I look like I had it. <laughs> I didn't want it anyway, but I feel like Esau. <laughs> no, you don't need to feel like Esau because you did, didn't pursue your inheritance if that's the case. All right, well, if, if a New Testament perspective happens, gives you a better psyche, good. Even with respect to inheritance, good. I guess I just wanted you to say it's all right that I don't worry about that anymore. You, you have my confirmation it's all right that you don't worry about yeah, that anymore. It's an invalid thing to worry about. It's an error and co-error of God and of the gifts of his heavenly Amen. kingdom. Amen. That's all I was there you go. You can rest on that one. Because my dad may get confused, and I don't know what he thinks, because he's a dispensational Christian, so I, you know. <laughs> he's still a Christian. Yeah, I know. Okay, so well, we'll, leave it at, we'll leave it at that. That's a, still a struggle, all right? <laughs> Our dispensational brothers and sisters are sweet Christians in many cases, in spite of what we... Disagree with the more. All right, let's close with prayer. Oh, before we end, we will begin to look at the verses next week. So we'll start with verse 1, obviously, and start to work through the book in detail. Our gracious God, we thank you for the rich treasures that are hidden with Christ in you. For you are the giver of and revealer and displayer and the worker of every good and perfect gift, even the perfect gift of prophecy in your servant Obadiah. We thank you for the blessing that his work has been to us thus far, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit will illuminate the words verse by verse as we proceed to your honor and praise and to our edification built up into the knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of the book of Obadiah, one whom Obadiah longed to see. In fact, he saw his day and was glad. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.